You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's Wednesday night adult Bible study audio. For more information on Cleveland First Baptist Church, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com. Good evening. Glad that you're here. We're also glad that those who are joining us online are there. We're going to be looking at a, a terrific uh, verse today out of the... Um, out of Matthew 8, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to those, to that uh, chapter. On Sunday, we're going to complete the section of our Matthew series that has dealt with the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been several weeks now uh, in Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Sunday week, we will begin the section of the Gospel that deals with the power of the kingdom. So first, the power of God over disease. We'll be talking about healing Sunday week. Uh, but tonight we're going to look at a teaching out of Matthew 8 in which Jesus tells those who are interested in following him that they must first consider the cost of that decision. Uh, about, a, about a year ago, we decided um, to get a second dog. Our dog is old, is really old, and... Um, you know, we know he won't be around that much longer, and our daughter had suggested it's really better if, you know, the new puppy can be with the old dog and kind of learn the ropes and that sort of thing. I'm not at all sure that's true. But we um, had looked at several different breeds, and we were very interested in a, a French bulldog. We knew somebody in Germany had a French bulldog. Her name was Shadow, and we just loved her. She was just a delight. And so Nancy and I were going to be in North Alabama um, for something completely different. And I noticed uh, just kind of, you know, how things flash up. I'd been looking online with, for French Bulldog and, a, and a, a breeder from that area flashed up. And I said, we're not going to be two miles from here. Let's go by and look. And I called him. He said, oh, yeah, I have numbers of several puppies for, that are for sale or will be within the next week or two. And. So we were all excited and went, and they were the cutest things, you know. You had about eight, and so neat to hold them. And so as we're talking about the breed and all that, I said, well, you know, I haven't really even asked what they cost. And he said, they cost $2,400. <laughs> and I, I just nearly dropped the dog, you know. Oh, I said, well, if you're ever selling one for about two, let me know. But... Um, you know, counting the cost, that is uh, an important thing. No matter what we're purchasing, we have to count the cost. Um, and Jesus tells in this, in this passage, he talks to people who say, I want to follow you. I want to, I want to you know, be your disciple. And Jesus said, not so fast. He said, first, you need to know what you're getting into. You need to count the cost. So wh what is the cost of following Jesus. Now, we actually talk about this quite often, but I want to put this on the table right to start with because it's so important. What does it require for us to be disciples of Christ? Is it not free? Does not the very word grace mean gift? It does, of course. Didn't Paul say it very clearly in Ephesians 2.8? He said, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for any good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about that. So before we even look at our passage tonight, let's just get this part straight. Paul is talking here to those who would strive to earn their salvation through the works of the law. They, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, would feel they would be worthy of the gift of salvation because they had done the religious things that the law requires. They had been circumcised. They strove to obey the Ten Commandments. They brought their sacrifices to the temple just like God's word demands. They never missed celebrating a feast day required by the law. They were so good about doing the religious things that they even boasted about them. Paul says you can't earn your salvation. All religious acts in the world, all of them, will not save you. Salvation is a gift of grace. It is something that God has done through Christ. Now, in our modern day, we have abused this verse and the whole teaching of grace and the gift of salvation. Actually, we've landed right back where the Pharisees were on many, uh, in many ways. The way that thinking goes is something like this. Well, I can't earn my salvation. It's a gift of God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, salvation comes when I simply admit my need for forgiveness, confess my sin, and pray the prayer and uh, receive the gift of salvation. I then seal the deal with baptism and I'm good to go. Then when asked about their salvation, the answer is something like this. I've heard it a thousand times. Well, I walked the aisle when I was 10. I said my sinner's prayer and I got saved and I was baptized. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> well, pretty much in the way many people think about the gift of Christ, the salvation that he gives us. Circumcision was just replaced with a prayer and baptism, a religious act. So what is missing, actually? Uh, because you just can't deny, when you read the passage we're going to look at tonight, and the passage from Paul, you have to reconcile that some way. Um, well, the whole teaching of regeneration being changed by the Spirit of God living a life that is dedicated to following Christ above everything else in the world. Lordship, in a word, discipleship, that's what's missing. Salvation is thought to be something we do through a religious work, a prayer and baptism. And that's that. In our text for tonight, Jesus is approached by two people who say, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. And Jesus turns them both down. He says, it's too expensive. It's too expensive. You're not willing to pay the price. And that's what we have to talk about. A few years ago, a lady we know came to talk to Nancy and me about something that she was feeling God called her to do. And in the course of that conversation, she asked, well, do you think that I can take this on? Do you think I can do it? 
And I thought for a minute and I said, I'm not really sure you can. It's going to, it seems to me that you're really just too nice. If you take this on, it's going to mean real sacrifice. It's going to mean being criticized. It's going to require you to be tough and draw a line in the sand. And I don't really think you can do that. Not as I know you today. I was just being as honest as I could be. and That did not go over real well. Well, she later took the ministry and has done a great job. But at least six times she has called me and said something like this. Today, I was reminded of what you said. It was a tough day, and I had to make a tough decision. Thanks for helping to prepare me. Now, Jesus makes no bones about it. Following him is not easy, just as Stephen said on Sunday morning. Great job, Stephen, this morning, uh, Sunday. Being his disciple comes with a cost. And, you know, we can't get around it because Jesus is so crystal clear about a hundred times when he talks about this topic. So let's look at Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, now he's just healed all of these different people. We have the, rec the account of two, but it says, and, and many people were healed in the passages just before. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Well, foxes have dens to live in, and birds, well, they have nests. But the Son of Man, he has no place even to lay his head. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. He says, I want to follow you too, but... You know, first I had to go get this funeral over. But Jesus said to him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Wow. So we want to just first of all look at it sort of verse by verse and talk about this. Uh, verse 18 says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross, to cross the lake. Um, across to the other side of the lake. So why would it be significant that the crowd surrounded him? Uh, how, how serious were these people about discipleship? Why were they all there after all? What had he just done? He'd healed many people. That's what the scripture says. So how enticing... Would that be to follow a man who could just put his hand on somebody else and their withered hand will straighten out and be strong? That'd be pretty enticing, wouldn't it? Well, Jesus' response is to go to the other side of the lake to get away from that kind of following. And that actually happens on a number of situations in, as recorded in the Gospels. So let me ask you this. Are there really parallels to something like that today? What about the teachers who promise that you are a Christian? If you're a Christian, no harm is going to come to you. You're always be healed if you get sick. You're not going to get COVID-19. You know, there are 
those out there who are saying that. Let me ask you, did it always go well for the early Christians? Went better for the lions, didn't it? Were they not true believers then? Because God didn't shut the mouth of the lion like he did with Daniel? Let me ask you about the Christians killed in the concentration camps of World War II. Were they just not good enough as believers? Is that really what Jesus was teaching? I want you to remember one thing when you read the gospel. We'll talk about this Sunday week. There is a reason that Jesus healed so many people. Of course, he had compassion on them. But the purpose of the healings and other miracles was that they were a sign that Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies so that everyone could know he is truly the Messiah. So, <clears throat> before they can get away in the boat, this uh, one guy comes up in verse 19. He says, then we read, then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, so one of the Pharisees or Sadducees, says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is still, you know, early on, but, you know, he's just seen amazing things. He just can't even fathom it. And he just said, I'm ready to pack up and I'm going to be with you no matter what happens to you. And, you know, how do we respond when somebody says, I want to follow Jesus? Well, a lot of times, and how many times have I heard this? So, well, I ask and I just said the prayer, that prayer they repeated and that was that, you know. Does this mean that this person is, Jesus, you know, says, well, not so fast, you know. Uh, he slows him down, as we will see. But does that mean the person asking is ingenuine? Certainly not. Of course not. But it is easy to say, I will follow you anywhere. It is another thing to do it. How easy is it to take those marriage vows at the altar? And how hard is it to carry that through? Um, for a thousand different reasons. So here we have a person who is too quick to promise. As far as we know, Jesus turned him away. There's no reason to believe that he followed Jesus further. Verse 20, we read, But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. So Jesus did not want anybody to follow him under false pretenses. Jesus does not try to talk anybody into being uh, his disciple. Uh, so did Jesus not have any place to stay? Well, of course, he stayed with friends, right? We know that he stayed with Lazarus. We know that a group of uh, widows were financially supportive of his ministry he, he did have that, um, or else he could not have done what he did. He, but what he didn't have, he had no property. He owned no home. When he was crucified, all there was to divide was a cloak. That was it. Some total of his possessions. And even worse, he was constantly rejected 
by his own people and by the Gentiles. Um, I'm going to read a couple of verses that just remind us of that. John 5.18 says, So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. John 6.66 At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. And I believe it was at this point, right after that verse, when Jesus turns to the twelve and says, So, are you leaving too? Just like everybody else? Matthew 8.34 tells us, Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. Luke 9, But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Matthew 27, But the mob roared even louder, crucified him. The whole town. And then about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Even you. This, of course, does not mean that we can't own a home. Most Christians do. But it does mean that the things of the world cannot have dominion in our lives. And it does mean that Jesus may call us to give up even our homes in order to follow him for the kingdom's sake. But that isn't really the main point. Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple. It means a life of sacrificing for the kingdom of God. And true conversion is the transformation of our lives so that the kingdom of God, his people, his church, living for him takes priority over everything else. Over our material possessions, over our families, over our personal aspirations and desires. It means, in short, making Jesus Lord of all. And it may mean giving up our very lives for him. In Germany, before the Nazis, uh, during the Nazi era, um, you know, no, as it was just beginning, no Christian would ever have told you or thought that in their country it was possible for people to be put to death because they were followers of Christ. It was a Christian country, good grief. But only years later, thousands were tortured and murdered in the concentration camps. One of those was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer, who called the kind of mindless and spineless Christianity that is so common in our world today, he called it, he gave it a name, and he called it cheap grace. I'm sure you've heard that. That kind of grace that costs us nothing, nothing, the kind of faith that makes no sacrifice, the kind of Christianity that is unwilling to stand for the truth of what Christ called us to be. And this is what Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace. 
and I put it on the board so that you can read it. Can you read it? Yeah, I think so. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It is grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And Bonhoeffer described the opposite of cheap grace, and he called it costly grace. So costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. Remember that parable? For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell everything he has, all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And then in this verse, Jesus talks about the Son of Man. And I thought it might be important just to kind of um, talk for a moment about what that means. Um, you know, of course, that when Jesus referred to him, and he did so, I think it's 80 times in the Gospels, a whole bunch of times, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. And that was almost a common Hebrew expression. So the, the phrase, a son of man, and we find that in the Psalms more than once, a son of man is just a way of saying a man, a, a human being. He is the son of a man. He is a person, okay? But Jesus does something different here. He doesn't say a son of man. He says what? The son of man. He uses a definite article. And this is a reference then to Jesus as the Messiah, God's Son, sent to save his people. Jesus is the individual referred to in Daniel 7. Uh, verses 13 and 14 say, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, a son of man, a person, a man, it looked like a man to me, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into the presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, although he says it looks like a son of man, he is invested with authority, sovereignty, and honor over all. His kingdom is eternal, and he will never be destroyed. Very obviously, a messianic passage referring to the one that Jesus, that God would send. Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, and every Jewish person, they would know the scripture I just read to you. And they would instantly think he's calling himself the Messiah. And do you remember what Jesus said at the trial to the Sanhedrin? 
Jesus replied, you have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. There is no question that Jesus knew who he was and that he was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And everybody in that room understood that. And that's why they killed him. So, the next verse. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. So the first that disciple, the first person, the first would-be disciple, was rejected because he was too fast to say that he would follow. The second was rejected because he was too slow. The first guy said, I'll do anything. I'm, I'm, I'm packed. I don't even have to go home. I'm going to follow you right now. I'm getting in the boat. The second one said, well, I'd follow you, but you've got to give me a little time here. I've got to take care of things, wrap things up. There, there's really no question that this man's offer is a reference not to his father who was at the funeral home ready to get buried, but to his father who was still living. And the man is saying, you know, I really would love to follow you because, you know, man, you can do amazing things, but, you know, I don't know how long my dad will live and I'll, I'll be right behind you as soon as he dies. Okay, that's really the gist. Um, it's not that his father had passed away. Now, how do we know that? We know that, for one, because the dead in Israel had to be buried within 24 hours. So if his father had died in the last hour or two, you know, he wouldn't be there listening to Jesus preach. If his father had died, this man just wouldn't even have been there. Instead, he is offering to follow Jesus after staying at home, however long it took until his father passed away. But not today. Not today. So what does Jesus say to the slow guy? But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. So the response of Jesus, it, it seems pretty harsh, you know, especially when we're thinking in our culture, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, he's at the funeral home and, you know, he just needs a few days. That's not the case at all. But Jesus is warning the man that discipleship cannot be put off. It is not something you do when it fits into your schedule. It is something you do when you are called. Discipleship is an obligation for today, not for later when it's more convenient. In truth, we don't know that we have a tomorrow at all. Um, Jesus, if he is calling you today, this may be your only chance to respond. And Jesus is very quick and very clear to tell him that. When Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, it is the Greek word which is used throughout the New Testament to mean either physical death or spiritual death. It's the same word. Obviously, a dead person cannot bury, bury another dead person. So what is Jesus talking about? In this case, it is being used in a spiritual sense. The dead are those who no longer have the life-giving breath. Their lungs are empty. They are no longer able to function. The spiritually dead 
are those who do not have the life-giving spirit of God. And their lives are also empty. So Jesus said, you know, don't wait for any spiritually dead person. Don't let them hinder you from becoming a disciple. Because tomorrow just might be too late. Now, you know, we have lots of parables about that. You remember the guy building bigger and better barns? And Jesus said the only problem with that idea is that really he won't be alive tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that barn plan, it's just not going to be filled in. And he should have just given all that to the kingdom of God. It would have been to his glory. In Matthew 10, Jesus intensifies this very teaching. And he says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. That is a hard teaching. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying that discipleships, discipleship requires that we make a choice. We must choose Christ above every other person, including a family member. Now, I think that Generally speaking, we aren't put to the test there, but sometimes. I know plenty of believing spouses who have an unbelieving husband or wife who really put them to the test. Um, I'll, I'll never forget um, talking with a young lady. Uh, she was American. And her husband was in the military. And um, her dad was a preacher. And she loved the Lord. And, you know, her husband said, I don't, I don't believe, I'm not religious, I don't believe all of that, but, you know, I'm glad that you do. I'm glad that you found hope and life there. And you go, you know, go for it and I'll support you in that. And that went great until they had children. And for a year or two, she said, it was fine. You know, I just took the baby to church. I was faithful. Until one Sunday, he said, you know, I'm just going to keep Susie at home today. Uh, you go on to church. You do your religious thing. But, you know, she's my daughter, too. And pretty soon, what happened? Susie was never allowed to go to church. And this young woman just wept and said, what do I do? Not any easy answers there. But Jesus teaches, of course, the thing that was coming to her mind was the verse that she knew growing up where Paul said, you know, believers shouldn't be unequally, you know, wed with unbelievers. If you have a choice, then, you know, don't make that mistake. But for her, you know, it's just a very difficult subject, you know. But Jesus said, you know, no one can come before me. And uh, that can be a very hard thing. I'll, I'll never forget uh, in, a, in a baptism testimony, uh, a young teen about, well, she was probably 16 or 17, but 
uh, she came from an unbelieving uh, family, her mom. She was a single parent home. And when she shared her desire to follow Christ and be baptized, she just broke completely down. And she said to the church, the whole church, she said, please, please pray for me. Because my mom told me today, if I go through with the baptism, if I follow Jesus, then I'm out of, I'm out of the house. I don't have a place to stay. And so she said, I need strength. Boy, the church, they got on their knees for her. And you know, she went through with the baptism. <laughs> and um, her mom did not put her out on the street. And her mother, about a year later, actually came to faith herself. But, you know, there's no promise that it'll go that way. Uh, you don't have a guarantee there. Wow, this is uh, uh, an amazing, an amazing passage. I, I'd like for us to think, uh, in conclusion, of four, really four shocking truths about discipleship that are found here. And these are things we need to remember. First of all, it emphasizes the radical demands of Christ's kingdom. Jesus presented the demands of his kingdom and he explained them as callings that demanded the most radical kind of commitment from his followers. Following Jesus was never to be a part-time occupation. <laughs> it's not something I do on the side. It is all that I am and have. But we live in a world that is really obsessed with individual rights. I mean, it's extreme in our world. We bristle at the very idea that someone would tell us what to do. <laughs> and of course, the very obvious example today is the crazy situation with the masks. You know, um, the, the idea that that instruction would be something that we bristle at because we want to make our own decision. Okay, Regardless of how you feel about that, you can think however you want about that. That's not up to me. But I cannot be a follower of Christ unless I'm willing to lay down all of my rights to self-determination. That's in, that's in the deal, guys. The only thing I can decide is to follow Jesus, to know and obey his word, to work for his kingdom, to the very last breath I breathe. I give up when I say, Jesus is Lord. Every right to make any decision for my own life. My life belongs to him. Secondly, Jesus has a unique authority. He claimed to have this authority over his followers, and, and his authority, according to Jesus, supersedes all others. He said to his disciples just before his ascension, um, he said that all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Matthew 7 says he taught as one with authority. Matthew 8, even the wind and waves 
obey him. Now that's authority. <laughs> Matthew 9, no one is able to forgive sins but God. And what did Jesus do? Forgave the man's sin. And then Matthew 28, at the very end, just before the ascension, that's when he said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go. So to be a disciple is to put yourself under that kind of extreme authority. He is the authority in your life if you are a disciple. So the question that we must continually ask ourselves, is this what Jesus would have me do? Is this what he is telling me to do? To say no and to do it anyway is to usurp the authority of Jesus and place myself again on the throne of my life. That is, if I know that this is something Jesus would not want me to do, and I say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Then what I do is shove him off the throne and I say, I'm going to make my own decision. I am Lord of my life today. Um, you know, the very essence of sin, the very essence of sin is that very thing. It is making ourselves Lord. You know, um, really, why... Why was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was so bad about that apple? It wasn't the apple. It was the decision of Adam and Eve to be their own God. To say, I don't care what he says. I will do what I want to do. Now, the problem is that we really do that all the time, guys. Um, you know... And, and I don't want to, I don't want to step on toes. Well, actually, I probably do, I guess, because it's just the truth, you know. Uh, often, when I'm talking to a young person who is considering become becoming a Christian, I often ask, "Do you ever willingly disobey God?" So, well, certainly not. Of course not. If I knew that uh, God didn't want me to do that, I, I wouldn't do it. I've heard it a hundred times more. And my next question is, so you have never disobeyed your parents? Well, you know. I said, do you think God wants you to disobey your parents? Well, no. I mean, I know the commandment. And you do it anyway? That is the very heart of sin. And we do it too. But it should burden us Horribly. It should bother us terribly. You know, when we are unfaithful to God in whatever way it may be, whether it's not coming to worship Him, whether it's, I don't know, what it might be, that should really get under our skin. Because the Spirit will prod us and let us know. It's this is important. If Jesus is God, if He really is God, and and you cannot be a Christian without believing that he is God himself. Then he has all authority. Then it is not unreasonable for his disciples to surrender everything to him. Jesus actually has the right to whatever he wants.
whatever. Thirdly, this emphasizes, underscores the priorities of a real disciple. The scripture teaches that unless we are willing to surrender to the authority of Christ in our lives, we are not really true followers of Christ. We do not actually belong to him. Luke 14.26 says this, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even, and this is the point, this is the crux. It's not so... Not so bad about the family, but even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Hard. What that means is he has to be Lord, he has to be boss. Your life has to be oriented around him, what he requires, what he says, what he wants. And then one last one, the, the dangers of the world. It underscores that. Jesus' statement to this man about his father. It makes clear that the real danger... Uh, makes clear the real danger that our affections for the world and the things of the world and the people of the world bring to a disciple, a true disciple. Love of the world is the greatest danger to our spiritual lives, much bigger than anything else. It is the thing that more than anything else can keep us from following Christ, even relationships to our own family. I want to read a quote here. You can follow along. This is written in the 19th century by Bishop John Riley, who was a great British preacher. And he says this. Um, he says, It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants. So much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, the desire to keep in touch with the world. Well, you'd think that was written yesterday, wouldn't you? This is the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they, they think it proper to have some religion. I mean, you know. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so after running well and bidding fair for heaven while boys and girls, they turn aside when they become men and women and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. The Sermon Sunday. They begin with Abraham and Moses and they end with Demas and Lot's wife. <laughs> you remember Demas? Paul said, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessaloniki. And Lot's wife, remember? 
Don't look back. Don't look back. Sarah just couldn't let it go. She looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah, longing in her heart for those things of the world. And she turned to a salt block. Great for the cows, bad for her husband, you know. Wow, what a text. Um, so where, where do we go when we read a text like that? Probably on our knees because we fall so short. Luckily, our salvation is by grace. But do not mistake one fact. It is not cheap. It's not about a prayer and a bath. It is about being a disciple and letting and desiring and seeking to make Jesus Lord of all. It's the only way to follow him. Okay. I'd like for us to uh, have a word of prayer. Before uh, I do, um, let me just ask you to remember Becky Clemens. Becky is having a pretty rough week. She The chemotherapy has kicked in and she's been very tired and the worst thing is she's really trouble breathing. And um, Tina said that is actually from the chemo itself. I, I was not aware that that is sometimes a side effect, but they were prepared for that. So we need to remember Becky. I talked to uh, uh, Bobby Baker this morning, and, and Benny is continuing to improve, but um, but she has got a long way to go, and um, we need to pray that, you know, it just continues. It'll be a month before the uh, colostomy can be removed and things hook back up, but it's a really hard time, and it is so very important that she does not get the COVID virus. So they are having no contact, really. Benny has, I think, I think Bobby said, has just been out of the house one time. Uh, they, the doctor said, you cannot even have someone come in to clean. Absolutely not. You can't take any chances still. You're back, put back together. So let's remember her. Um, Pam, uh, Jackie and Wayman's daughter, is back at work. So she has uh, gone through a rough, will be Friday, has gone through a rough time with the COVID virus. And uh, so let's pray for, for Pam and just give thanks that she's going to be okay. Um, also, uh, let's remember the Chavez family, Christina's parents, both. We're very sick with COVID. They are both on the men now. I heard today that he, I don't know them. Uh, and you know, Christina is engaged to Chance uh, tomorrow. So uh, just so you put that together. But um, we heard today that Israel Chavez tested positive. So now the whole Chavez family is under quarantine. And just because the most vulnerable would be um, uh Israel's dad, um, Kutberto, is they, the uh, um, cousin, I think, has a, um, like a extra house or trailer or something, and he's going to stay for 10 days there, just so he doesn't run the risk of getting it or giving it. If he has it, I guess they'll be tested now the next day. Uh, Israel was really sick for a day, and then the next day he was fine. So he feels much better now, uh, but you don't know how the whole family will you know, be affected by that. Okay, 
Um, that's all. I, yes, Charlene. I, I did too. <laughs> yeah, she well, she was she was feeling better today, but she has um, just a terrible back issue and is also on antibiotics for respiratory. Yeah, yes, but she's she is better today. And Tommy has also had whatever it is uh, that they've had, but he is uh, feeling better too, she said. So thank you for reminding me of Dale and Tommy. Anybody else? Yes, with diverticulitis, right? Yeah. Oh, that is just... Yeah. Well, let's remember Teresa because that is it really makes you awfully sick. That's actually what, what Benny had, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you and um, bring every care, every concern before your throne. And, Lord, we just bring all of those that have been mentioned today and we ask you, Father, to have mercy on them, to put your healing hand on them, that your power would be reflected in their lives as they become physically well. We thank you that each of them is your child and is already spiritually alive. Lord, we live in a pretty difficult and scary world right now. I pray, Father, that the world would not in any way control us, but that we would put our trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be wise in all that we do. Lord, we want you to be Lord of our lives, and we know that in so many ways you are not. And we just ask you for forgiveness and for conviction where we shove you off the throne. Jesus, we don't want to be turned away. We want to get in the boat with you and cross to the other side. And we thank you, Father, that through your sacrifice that is possible. Let us live our lives with you and for you in all we do and say and have. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So glad you're here tonight. And for those online, I hope you've had an enjoyable evening. And um, we'll see you Sunday.